Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And I am so excited because Alexander Shia is back in the house. Some of you, welcome, my good welcome. friend. Thank you, thank you. It's and good to be back. Alexander was on the podcast uh, a couple months ago, and so many of you mentioned how his fourfold path and the Gospels and the sort of the journey that we're all on just blew you away and so i thought he was going to be back in town he's flying in from australia and then heading to new mexico and at some point we'll get into your travels yeah. but um that we had to have him back on to take us a little deeper and uh, we have an audience today of two well kristen bell was here but she uh but we have an audience of two darren roundson and phil wood are here um, beloved friends of mine and fellow surfers. Kristen Bell is here walking around. It's actually 400 degrees in Los Angeles. So uh, we're doing the podcast at my 450. kitchen. 450. We're doing the podcast at my kitchen table because it's the only place that's cool that doesn't have a massive amount of fans or air conditioners blasting and making it sound bad. So that's why it sounds like we're at a larger space because I am, we are. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Kristen Bell? Okay. <laughs> Do you like that explanation? Okay, so, um, Alexander, last time, there's so many places I want to talk about, because we have to talk about what you're up to, so maybe at the end, you'll tell people about some things you're up to and how they can get more connected. I'd love for you to talk about tribes and diversity at some point, but maybe we should start, last time you gave us, which is sort of the heart of your book, Heart and Soul, this framework, these four questions. Um, and for especially people who didn't hear the first one, maybe we should start with you just giving a brief overview because it's just so helpful. And every time I hear it, I hear something new. Does that sound like that's, a good place to start? Good. You know, and the Harper edition was Hidden Power of the Gospel. And then four years later, re-edited and it came out as Heart and Mind. Okay, so the book is Heart and Mind. Heart and Mind. Um, so the, the premise is <clears throat> that the early church was looking at how to give people a vital journey through the teachings and presence of Jesus. So my sense is, is that how you can discern gospel texts a couple hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection is you're looking for the journey. And they knew their metaphor for the journey. Their metaphor for the journey was the Jewish understanding of the journey with God, which they had celebrated at Passover that Passover has got these four parts to it, but it's not just about historical remembrance of Passover. Passover is the metaphor for the vital journey that we're all on. So it starts out, we're a slave in Egypt. All right, somewhere in our life right now, we're unfree. Somewhere in our life right now, we're locked down. We've got, and you can use addiction language if you want, but there's some place in us right now that is unfree or, or is just becoming into being. And if we make the decision to go with that expansion, the next place that we're going to go is a wild, a wild place, a, a desert place, because we've got to unlearn some things. We've got to let go of yesterday's reality so we can burst into this larger reality. So for the Jewish people, they understood that as the place that they went in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. The third place on the journey is they come across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And that, you, that moment when you, when you know the new promise, you know this is real, except it's not really real. It's, it's a great idea, and you've got a little bit of a sense about how to make it happen. But the fourth place is you've got to go through a long time 
of learning and integrating and making this your everyday reality. So just think of the Passover journey or the Exodus journey, a slave in Egypt, a wilderness time, a coming into the promised land where you know God's promise, and then a long time of learning how to make that promise your everyday reality. I love it. The first time you were here, you didn't add any of that layer to it. Correct? Audience of two? <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. I'm like, give us an overview, and instead you add a whole nother layer of understanding to it. Yeah. Now, you're an anthropologist by training. I, by undergraduate and training, yes. So you came in, you didn't come into this through a Bible door. Well, you I, came I, into I, this I was on my way to seminary, but I discerned for some reason that I needed anthropology before I did theological studies. So you came into your writing and the things that you talk about essentially through studying how human beings have journeyed. Yes. Like yes. a non-religious, how have human beings yes. across history? How have human beings across history transformed? Yeah. And one of the most prevalent metaphors for the journey of transformation is a four-part journey. Now, you can do it in seven, 11, 22 and a half, whatever. Don't get stuck on the number. But for the Jewish people at this point, the number was four. And I'm, and I'm making the, the leap that because our Jewish mother did it in four, that when we gathered together the gospel text and said, These are th this is the right text, what we were tracking was the four-part journey. And so we know that the first thing that they said before they chose any text was, we have to have four parts to this. Which is fascinating because all the people who are like, why are there that many gospels? Why is the Bible? Oftentimes you'll hear questions about the Bible in, in conspiracy language. Why is the Gospel of Thomas left out? What about yes. the Shepherd of Hermas? It's sort yes. of a suspicion somebody's pulling the wool over our eyes. And you're saying as an anthropologist, no, there are four Gospels in the New Testament because these people understood something about human development. Absolutely. They understood human development and they understood that Jesus was here to, to bring us a more vital life. And here's the journey to that more vital life in an ever-repeating cycle. And there are four questions. Yes. That, eat, that, that represent each of the four stages. Yes, and then what I'm suggesting is, is that our Christian ancestors redefined or, or, or reinterpreted the four Jewish questions. So rather than in the Jewish metaphor, I'm a slave in Egypt and I have to go on a journey of liberation, what the Christian statement was is, um, how do I face change? How through the vital resurrected life of Jesus do I lean into change? And then the second question is, how do I endure the trials and the obstacles that this journey of freedom and, and more vital life will bring me? And then third is, uh, I will come into that place where I hear and know this new promise of, of, of God in my life. But, but knowing the promise is a necessary step, but it doesn't accomplish the work. The fourth step is, how do I take this new promise and live it in wider service to self and other. So again, the four questions, one, how do I face change? Two, how do I move through trials and obstacles? Three, how do I know and receive joy, which is God's promise for us? And fourth, how do I make that, how, how do I mature by serving self and other? So there's this moment in the third movement when you're in the suffering, you're facing the obstacles, you're in the turmoil, you're in the dark night of the soul, and you're broken open. Yeah. 
yeah. you have the moment of epiphany, the moment of yeah. revelation. Yeah. You're smashed against the rocks yeah. and the light yeah. finally shines through. Yeah. And you have, I know for many people, people <clears throat> will say like, I ended up face down in the gutter and suddenly things made sense. Or I lost my job and I was down to my last dollar and somehow in that moment, the thing that I had to learn, I learned, or whatever it is. Yeah. It's yes. not just your ecstatic, oh my word, I finally get it. Yeah. It's that experience being integrated into your life in such a way that you can now give back to your people, tribe, humanity, something of what has happened to you. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, ah, I, I, see that's, I got I, it. I love Jack. Cornfield's phrase that when we start spiritual practice, our troubles seem to increase because we choose to no longer hide from them. It, what what <laughs> so happens? Good. What happens in that second journey of the, the part of trial and obstacles is we've got all this pain or, 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 or issues that we've been hiding away from, and then we start the journey because we really want freedom, vitality, liberation, and the first thing we have to do is clear out all the stuff we haven't been looking at. Yeah, because so and many. It, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, and it hurts, or but it's but it's old pain. I, what, what I keep telling people is, it's not new pain; it's really old pain, and you've got to live through that old pain before you find the new freedom. Say more about that. Well, it, because um, when you start this journey of transformation, you're not going to create new pain. People will experience on the second path all these trials and obstacles. And the trials and obstacles are really there as the faces, <laughs> the face of everything that we've not been willing to look at or experience before. Ah, oh, because so many times I've talked to people who they've had this sort of awakening, like, wait, this thing that I'm a part of, this system, family, organization, way of life doesn't work anymore, or it's broken, or it's unhealthy, or it's toxic, or it's crushing me or whatever. And they realize they need to make a change, get out, get boundaries, whatever it is. And I find myself intuitively knowing and saying to them, here's the situation. It's going to get worse. Yes. Seemingly worse. It's going to get really hard here for a bit. Because if you're part of like, like classic example is like, a, you know, a kid who's in a family and dad's an alcoholic and they suddenly realize, wait, I have been propping up this whole thing, playing my role, and it's, it's sick, it's unhealthy. I'm just letting everybody pretend like everything's fine. And when they have that moment of sort of enlightenment, okay, so if you don't keep playing the character that you've always played and reading from the script that everybody's agreed to, you're going to disrupt the family system and you could get shunned, condemned. Yes. They yes. may try to woo you back. They may try to shame you. They yes. may yes. bring up all sorts of things they know about you that yes. no one else, whatever it is, to get you back to keep the system exactly as it is. Right. You're, um, do not look to friends and family who have not gone on their own journey to support you when you start to grow. <laughs> don't you feel like Alexander's just full of those? Do you know what I mean? Like they just don't stop coming. Uh, so what happens when people say, so when people say things like, yeah, but the people around me, they might not understand. They won't. Yeah. And, and they won't, and we have to learn to be compassionate about the fact that they can't. 
But the fact that they can't understand doesn't mean that I should stop my my journey. Okay, at lunch just now, you we were talking about diversity and tribes. Yeah. Um, and if I the number of people I've met who are basically are like I'm part of a tribe that acts a particular way and I can't do it anymore. Can, can you please talk about diversity and tribes and some of the stuff we were talking about at lunch? Let's see if I can do this somewhat succinctly. No need to be um, succinct. It's a podcast. All right. <laughs> so I, I grew up in this incredibly wonderful, loving Lebanese family in Birmingham, Alabama. Were there a and lot of Lebanese people in the 60s? There, well, they, they all In came, Birmingham, Alabama? Yes. There are like 5,000 Lebanese families. Came and from Lebanon to Alabama. They came from Alabama to Bur- I mean, from Lebanon to Birmingham. What was the attraction Bur- to Alabama? Economic opportunity. The steel mills were raging. Birmingham was a new city created in 1875 because of the iron ores, and because of the the discovery of iron ore, and the, that's where the the north, south, east, west railroads crossed. Oh, so interesting. So it's a, a post Civil War city that just boomed out of nowhere because of of economic opportunity and immigrants coming through Ellis Island were being brought down to Birmingham on trains to do anything now my family came to Birmingham uh, my father's family came in the late 1890s my mother's family came in 1912 and they built businesses uh, grocery store right my mother's grocery store and my father uh, my, my father's family a general store my grandfather was a peddler until he earned enough money that he could build uh, a, a, a general store just south of Birmingham that's actually now a very fine men's clothing store. Same building. Same building. Built by my grandparents. Just amazing to walk in that store and see the brickwork and know that my grandparents laid that brick. All right. So, so you're, I, and I, you were Catholic. Catholic. Catholic Lebanese, Lebanese living in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. And this is 60s. Well, well I was born in the 50s. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so I'm, you know, my growing up days, my, my teen days are in the 60s with all the, the, the civil unrest in Birmingham. Can you tell us about that? Oh, you have, I remember you telling me about your grandma. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the story that I, that I was just telling at lunch was because I just saw the movie Selma and was traumatized at how much that was not a movie for me. It was reliving a very difficult experience. Wow. And I remember when I was... 11 or 12 years old, coming home from school, and Emily, this incredible uh, woman who was in our family for 64 years, and she really raised me. And I came in that day, and we sat down at the table, and Emily was, um, she was really stumbling and awkward with me, which is not the way Emily was with me at all. And uh, she kept, wanting to ask a question and stopping and and so finally i just said emily what is it and she said you have to promise me and i'm like what emily she said you have to promise you will not tell your parents a 11 year old kid being asked to not tell his parents something and i'm like what's going on and so finally i agreed because i trusted her that much and she said well i want you to teach me to write my name so she can go down and register to vote in Birmingham, Alabama in 1964. And um, the sad thing is, is that I don't, I can't say that she was 
wrong in being afraid of my parents that if they found out about that that they would have dismissed her uh, as wonderful as my parents were I do not know that that was a, a an irrational fear in her so when when I watched that when I watched that the Selma it was just it was you know I just walked into that movie because I'd lived it I'd been in the streets with Martin Luther King my brother was National Guard and was down protecting the troops on, on the on the bridge in Selma, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but all of that is back to this sense of tribe because I, I grew up in Birmingham knowing about the walls between tribes, knowing that I was Lebanese Catholic, which was a which was a certain tribe, and that my tribe was not open to going into other churches. My tribe was not open to being invited into certain social clubs in Birmingham. My tribe couldn't go to certain schools. And so I've always had this deep antenna for the limitations of tribe. And at some early age made this decision that I did not want to be quote unquote in a tribe or a ghetto. And this is what I find so exciting to me and empowering and and uh, in early Christianity that uh, and I don't ever want to go to a triumphal Christianity but there is one thing that's that is the hallmark of our tradition and that is we are the first tradition that has a historical record of being pan-tribal now if other religious traditions were able to do that, they didn't leave a record behind, and we may simply be that tradition because we have a historical record left behind. But we do something in the Mediterranean world which was unheard of in that second and third and fourth century. We opened the door and said, it no longer matters who your mama is. Come. It no longer matters whether you're free or slave. And you gotta realize that in those days, the if you were a slave, there was a question about whether you were human and had souls. And I remember that in Alabama because the, the question in Alabama in the 1950s is, do black people have souls? And you remember people discussing that with a straight yes, face? Yes, absolutely. Even as a kid, the adults were discussing that? Yes. Whew. Extraordinary. So go back to that first, second, third century in the Mediterranean, and this is absolutely what makes Christianity so incredibly vital is following the wisdom of Jesus. We are creating an expanded form of the human family unlike anything in recorded history up to that point. I love that the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, sometimes it's translated new humanity, where the wall comes down. Yes, yes. And it's so interesting to me when people are like, oh, it's, that stuff is so lame. What does that have to offer anybody? I'm like, wait, 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 wait. These are some of the first places ever in human history where somebody talked about how our shared humanity trumps whatever we've cooked up to divide ourselves. Totally, totally. And I, you know, I, I keep hoping that I will hear about other religious traditions before the first century that were actually doing this now Judaism had the teaching about all are one but at this point in their history their organization was 
you be one over there and we'll be one over here. So it, it was a, I mean, it was a separate but equal organization. You know, though, though, though they very much held the equality of all people. I'm struck with um, how the Bible begins with Abraham being told, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a tribe out of you. But the tribe I make out of you is going to be a tribe to bless all the other tribes. So in a tribal conscious setting, all tribes existed to preserve themselves. So-and-so has this many donkeys and this many sheep and this many warriors, which is basically saying, here's how he's going to be able to protect what he has and maybe make some alliances to get some more. So everything was your tribe, your people, your blood, passing on your seed. So this idea early, early, early on was a tribe that doesn't just exist to to protect and preserve itself, but to actually bless all the other tribes. And then the rest of the Hebrew scriptures is basically this tribe failing to get the point and then jesus comes along and says wait wait wait! you're supposed to be a light reminding them of their destiny which was a like a heightened consciousness yeah Yeah. um and in some cases we're still not we're not there still no we're still not there and we're we're always going to be on the way because we're always on this journey of transformation Mm -hmm. but one of the core stories that i would like to ask all of us to take to heart is the story of jesus and nicodemus because Nicodemus is the revered good teacher of Israel, the tribe, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, look, you're a great guy. I see, I see, I see the work you're doing. I see the way people respond you're to you. You're a great guy. <laughs> I, I, see, I see the way you touch people's hearts. But look, Jesus, look, we know that you can only have the privilege of being part of our family and knowing Yahweh when you have Jewish blood in you. How can you take somebody that's an adult and put them back in a Jewish mother's womb and give them Jewish blood? I mean, this is that the argument between Jesus and Nicodemus, and it really is an argument, is about tribalism. I mean, there are many, many more layers to what's going on, but it's first and foremost about tribalism. And Nicodemus is the sad, tragic figure who believes in natural law. And every time anybody puts forward an argument about natural law, they're doing the Nicodemus because God is always going before us. So we're always trying to catch up our awareness. We're always trying to expand into a more vital life. And God is standing there in Rob Bell sense with us, cheering us on and, and a half inch ahead of us. So and you, Nicodemus can't go there. Natural law, you would simply say is like, well, can't you see it's how it is? Yes. You were born there, you were born there, you have that skin color, you're part of that tribe. Isn't it clear? For 2000 years, we have known that we have the privilege of our worship because we have Jewish blood in us. You can't dispense with that natural law. Uh, Similar to caste systems, you were born here. Similar to what you see in class systems, which is, think about how many movies are built around, can you, do you have to stay in the notch that you were born into or can you? Yes. Can you rise? Can you achieve? Can you leave behind? Can you marry somebody who isn't part of your tribe? Can you elevate your stock, essentially? Right. Oh, so interesting. It's like a fundamental, primal human well, question. It is. And, and, and people are saying, well, now, how did you get to this interpretation? But well, go, go to the earth, go to the ground, go, go to what's going on in the first and the second century that makes this conversation so essential. 
You know, if this text is coming out of Ephesus, which is the first community, which is pan-tribal, truly pan-tribal, and John is trying to write a text that will increase the vital diversity of this community, we don't want second-class Christians. We're all, we, we are all part of one family. But we've got within us the Christian community in Ephesus. We've got this old voice that's pulling us back to yesterday. They're trying to make first-class Christians and second-class Christians over who's your mother and where did, where did your bloodline come from? And by how can you say that all of these Gentiles are part of the body of Christ? How can you say that this is part, that all of these people are sons and daughters of, of the one great source spirit? And so now put Jesus and Nicodemus into that conversation. You know, the text is being inspired because of what's going on in the community about diversity and diversity is, is ending up being back into old privileged categories. So good, say more about that please. I sense you have a whole world. Well, I, I mean, I, like that. I, I have a world because, um, I mean, I've experienced so many times in my life people saying, you can't think that. You can't go there. You can't grow there. Who gave you the authority? What, what of yesterday confirms your ability to say that today? And I'm like, to do that at any moment, and I, and I, I mean, I'm the person who has this great love of the four traditional Gospels because of what I see underneath them, which is so incredibly expansive. But people are saying, well, 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 show me the second and third century author about the scriptures who says you can say this now, Alexander. And I'm saying, what confirms me is knowing how spirit and matter are together and the journey of transformation we're all on and that expansion is the only option. So I want to look at what the second century people said and the third century people said is where we started from. I don't ever want to be today where, where our tradition was 1800 years ago. I want to grow. I want to expand. I want vitality. I want equality. I want the whole human family. I want the cosmos as a vital, diverse one. Now let's go there. Now, you, you have talked to me before about the oneness in the Gospel of John. Yes. Where do you, and you were just telling me that you did, just did eight days with 50 people? Yeah. Where you take them for eight days, five hours a day, through oneness. We essentially do the Gospel of John as the spiritual practice of oneness. And how do you define the spiritual practice of oneness? Well, it, I mean... Can you do the eight days first right now in a few minutes? <laughs> in, I hate so, it when people do that when they're like, well, what did you I, talk about yeah, for two yeah, days? Yeah. And I'm like, what did I talk about for two days? Uh, well, do you have two days? We, yeah. Because <laughs> it, 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 it's not, it's not we're, we're, we're praying, we're, we're, we're chanting, we're doing some ritual work, we're getting up in the night and keeping, keeping vigil as we pray for the world and for the cosmos. But we are moving through the pattern of what John gave us. And uh, I mean, John is, as a psychologist and as an anthropologist, John is the most incredible text I know about how to truly build the foundation of a communion which is utterly respectful of the, in, of the jewel of each individual and the gift that you have to bring. 
but that we believe that we can have a certain type of communion which enhances your gift and doesn't limit it. That there's a certain type of communion and community which will amplify your gift and revel in it and, and, and be joyful in it and will expand your growth and not limit it. And this is the new form of, if you want to use the word tribe, it's a new form of tribe that I hope that we're growing towards, a new form of family, a new form of community. Because the communities that most of us came from is, here's the box and stay in it. Yeah. Community means everybody the same. Everyone the same. Repress your individuality. Everyone thinking within a certain prescribed parameter. And if, if you begin to question certain things, it immediately sets you outside the tribe. And you're going to get the shunning and the shaming, and then they're going to try to pull you back in and squelch your radiance. Well, it, squelch your what? Radiance. Oh, radiance. I thought you said ratings. <laughs> ratings, and I immediately thought of um, what's happening with the Republican Party, yeah. because it's in turmoil to a certain degree. And you're watching a tribe do all of this who's in, who's out, who's true, who's not. Um, we're watching before our eyes, and the next Republican debate, you've been in Australia though, so you probably don't care, but the next Republican debate is coming up in the next few days. And what's so striking to me is half of the questions are about whether or not you're a part of our tribe. Yes, yes. And if you have that position on that thing, you're watching a tribe sort of disintegrate, well, not disintegrate, try to figure out what the tribe even is, and then generally at some point someone refers to Ronald Reagan right. as like the ultimate, but I'm with the original tribal chief, and then someone either goes back earlier or who says, actually, I have a different interpretation of what Ronald Reagan meant, and you're just watching it go round and round and round and round, shunning, shaming, wooing. This candidate's now friends with this candidate because they're against that candidate. Yeah. It's all who's pure enough, who's orthodox enough. Yeah. yeah. So. So, I mean, the book that I'm that I've just started is is exactly this material on John. And I don't know whether if we want do we want to go do we want to go into this give material? Us little, give us or, some, yeah. So we start out with the the prologue, and in the beginning is logos, the word, except. As we look at that that term word underneath that is logos, which is allness or veryness or everythingness. And if we go back to the Aramaic, I think that the best interpretation of that language today would be: "In the beginning is God's breathing, and nothing comes <laughs> into being except in God's breathing. And God's breathing is with God, and God's breath is God." Now, why is this so important? Because John is, has to go back and widen out Genesis because we are a pan-tribal community. He's got to go back and say, God didn't come to establish a tribe as his tribe or her tribe. God came to establish all people. In fact, I would say God put God's very self into the cosmos and therefore the cosmos is God's tribe. But so then we go to this next critical meditation in John, which is Jesus turning to Simon and saying, Simon, you're Petros. Well, what the heck is this? Petros is usually in the scriptures translated stone. In this one instance, it's translated as rock. Doesn't matter, except that it's across the Mediterranean at this point that stone is the incorruptible substance. 
for us, we can say stone is gold or stone is the diamond. But for them, their metaphor is that stone was incorruptible. It was permanent and it was incorruptible. Now, we're going to build here a, a, a diverse communion built on the unique gifts of each individual. And so when Jesus at the opening of John, which is the practice of building this new diverse communion, turns to Simon and says, you're Petros. He's not just saying it to you. He's saying it to you, Rob. He's saying it to you, Kristen. He's saying it to each one of us. You are stone. You are of the incorruptible substance. Nothing you ever do can take this reality away. You can cover it over. You can forget it. You can live without knowing about it if you so choose. But come home to your true home, to your true self, incorruptibility. Now, so the, so the first core practice of diverse communion is the deep recognition and affirmation and calling forth of each person's gift and recognizing that when you start calling forth each person's gift, you're going to have an incredible cacophony. And let it be. So the next meditation in John is the wedding at Cana. But this is not the wedding at Cana, a city that we can't find existing in the first century. We can find a Cana that exists in the fourth century when we started mapping out Israel and where we thought Jesus went. But in the first century, we can't find any village named Cana. This wedding that John gives us at the opening of his text is the wedding of us. And it's the wedding of all of us who know our incorruptibleness, who know our gift, who want the place that we can give our gift, and we know that giving our gift is magnified in relationship. That, magnif that true relationship does not limit us, true relationship magnifies us. This, we are all yearning on this planet right now for the forms of community that will, that will magnify the beautiful radiance that each one of us has come to give. And this is John's text, and it's, just, it's so remarkable because John gives us this beautiful image of the six stone vessels. Six stone. Now, now we, we, we missed the, the importance of the stone because we didn't hear that Peter was stone, and because we didn't remember that what stone means across the Mediterranean about, you're incorruptible. So this community is going to be a community made up of six radiant stones. But what is this sickness about? Well, the sickness in John goes back to the sixth day of creation when God creates us, female and male, God creates us. In God's likeness, God <laughs> creates us. And the sickness then carries forward in Judaism to the image that's on that's the image of Jerusalem that's on the Israeli flag today the six-pointed star of David and the six-pointed star of David is made up of the downward turning triangle for the feminine and the upward turning triangle for the masculine they're interlocking and let's not go literalist biological here let's let's bring this male and femaleness back to its to the essence of energy we're talking about 
yin and yang we're talking about light and dark we're, we're talking about these two major energy forms that intertwine throughout the universe that compose us and every tradition at some level has some framing language for these two polarities yes. that dance with each other yes and yes. if you're missing one or missing the other you're missing something about the the nature of the universe yes so this communion is filled to the bread and I love the text the servants when Jesus says fill it with water the servants do what is utterly Christian which is never to do subsistence but to do abundance they fill those jars to the brim yeah and the storyteller wants you to know to the brim yeah and then that water becomes wine but which is so true of relationship the wine of relationship you cannot serve at the beginning the wine of transformation the good wine of transformation is something that comes through the long slow if i can use the phrase alchemical process of transformation that two or more engage in as they call forth each one's radiance and bend it towards harmony So then, here's, here's John's beauty. I mean, it's just, and, and this is what we were doing all last week in Melbourne. What's his next teaching about communion? Because this sort of communion starts by knowing that each one is radiant and that together we're going to be even more radiant, but we've got to go on a journey together. And so the next major teaching in John is about the temple has to be cleansed. And boy, does it. Because to get to this new community of radiance, we got to clear out a lot of old thinking. We had to clean out a lot of old feeling. And the, the heart of John's text is going to be about this, this purification or this emptying of the old. Because if we simply go forward with the idea that we want to create this vital newness, it's going to turn around and bite us in the back. As if we simply go forward with the idea that we want to create the new without looking at the old, the old will creep up and pull us back and we'll be in as bad or if not worse shape than when we started. Because now we'll believe that the new vital communion isn't possible. Which is why I meet so many people who want to start a new thing. And when you ask them what they're starting, they give you a list of what it won't be. Yeah. We're not going to do that. They can tell you all the things they're against. And when you talk to them about, well, this thing that you're against, which is why you have to start this new thing, because you can't be a part of the old thing. Yeah. When you start to say, well, is there any good in that old thing? And maybe it did shape you in some good ways. And let's first be grateful for that. Then let's decide out of that. Let's parse out what you probably should leave behind. But what is it that has helped you be who you are? Yeah. Now we can go forward. Otherwise, it's just, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this new, fresh right. thing. And then the new, fresh thing becomes as old and lame as the old thing right. in no time. Right. Because you first have to identify what is the thing I'm leaving and what, what do you, what do you integrate it? Do you sort through it? Do you acknowledge it, leave it behind? What language would you use? Well, um... Let, I mean, let's look at what John does because, I mean, John is so utterly practical. And so the, the first thing he's going to say to us is, where's your Nicodemus voice? 
Go, go to the, the the next major story after the cleanse of the temple is Jesus and Nicodemus, and it's uh. like, okay, the first thing is, wh- what are the voices inside of yourself that say this can't be happening? What are the voices inside of yourself that limit your ability to expand? What are your what are the voices inside yourself that say, oh, but we know the nature of reality and this is all it can be? Yeah, the voice that often masquerades as realistic. I'm just trying to be realistic here. Yeah, exactly. Which is really just cynicism disguised exactly. or negativity or this is for somebody else, not me. Or it's the failure to embrace the fact that your life actually might be able to be great. Right. Because you've beaten yourself up for so long and you've starved yourself and you've denied yourself. And with the good that did come, you sort of dismissed it or made it like saw it as an accident and not just the way of the universe. Right, right. So you have to identify the voice that is holding you back from all that is just waiting to be poured out on you. Right, and you want to identify it and you want to extend it compassion and you want to let it know that it that you're going to listen to it but you're not going to let it paralyze you. It, yeah. it, 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 has, it has a valuable role to play to make sure sometimes that you don't move too fast in the wrong direction. So you want to, you want to hear it but you don't want to give it any power. Yeah, Liz Gilbert talks about how saying to fear, fear you can ride in the back seat. Yes. It's fine, you can ride in the back seat, but yes. you cannot have your hand on the wheel and you cannot choose the music. Totally, totally. <laughs> so sometimes what happens is people are, are just racked with, I just need to get rid of that instead of, you have some shame, you have some fear, you have some insecurity, acknowledge it. Just let it sit there at the table, yeah. it's okay. Just yeah. don't give it more power than it deserves. Yeah. Every part has a role to play. Every part has a role to play. And we can't have the inclusive, diverse communion that we want when we start saying, you can't have a seat at the table. As soon as we say to a place inside of us, you can't have a seat at the table, we can't, we're, we're saying to somebody around the table, you can't have a seat at the table. Okay, so many of the reasons why people say, I tried to join that community, but it was lame and no one got along and they all fought and nobody could, could just accept other people was because of all the stuff within ourselves that people weren't accepting and reconciling and making peace with. Yes. And so all outward yes. outward failure to bond or have harmony is simply a manifestation of an inward state. And and you can work it either way. You get some people have a have a the desire to work it by by working on those outer people in their lives and other people have a propensity to work it in the inner frame. Um, it all goes to the same place. And that's the, the next major metaphor in John is, the woman, is Jesus and the woman at the well. Let, let's choose a, a, a powerful figure, but someone who is opposite from your, your viewpoint. And let's, let's sit at the well with this person. Because everyone is your teacher. Everyone is my teacher. Everyone is my teacher. And, so, and, and I love this, this, this new scholarship, which is suggesting that the woman at the well, that, that Jacob's well is a sacred site to the Samaritans. And that the women who are the stewards of that well are some form of Samaritan priesthood. <laughs> that is fantastic. So the Jesus talking about the woman in the well is Jesus. So this interpretation is Jesus is interacting with a spiritual leader yes. about the very nature of what true community and what it means to be part of tribe. Yes. 
and she and, is the antithesis voice who's saying no our ancestors worshiped on this mountain like yeah. she's claiming our tribe this soil this land this is how it works and he once again is calling her back to no we're all part of the same tribe you want a mountain i'll show you a mountain right and the five husbands are <laughs> the 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 gall of the samaritan has got five faces and jesus is in some sense calling her through those five faces back to the one source <laughs> how are you fellas liking that by the way, I know, I'm imagine that there are people, I've always found the Bible just riveting, mm -hmm. but I, I do interact with people who have only ever heard the Bible as this very sort of black and white, literal, heavy sort of, this verse means this. For people who are like, wait, I've never heard somebody talk about the Bible like this. Although if you've been listening to this Robcast, you've heard about the Bible talked about like this. What do you call this for somebody who's like, what are you doing with the Bible right now? Because this is a much more interesting story. What would you, how do you sort of explain that to somebody? This Bible is your life. It's your life. You're expanding, developing life. This is your story. And so and these... I'm, not, I'm not trying to live the Jesus story, except that, the, except that Jesus is this incredible presence, vital presence, who helps me live my life at the level and depth that he lived his. So it's, the, it's these stories of people telling you what their transformation looked like, and you read these stories to see what your transformation looks like. And yes. you see your transformation in theirs, and you see your story in theirs. Yes. And, to, and, and I see their map. Because there are patterns, there are truths. I love the story yes. where uh, Jesus and Peter takes them up on the mountain and there's this sort of mystical transfiguration experience and then Peter immediately wants to build a tabernacle, which is our human propensity to freeze a moment and not let a moment just be the moment. So in this ancient Precisely. story, you're like, wait, that's what we do. We, we try to hold Precisely. on to things when the moment has passed and we're right. still trying to build a structure instead of just letting it be whatever it is in the moment. Right. So ridiculous, and, and it's and it's why, in, in in my way of understanding, the text of John doesn't have a story of the Transfiguration, because the whole story is the text of the Transfiguration, which is not just a mountaintop experience. Transfiguration is larger life, expansion. There's always a larger life and expansion, and this this gospel is the text about the practices that that create in us or amplify in us this this cross figure, this transfiguration, individually and collectively. This is what I love about what you do, is you take us to the highest, most expansive spirit view of reality, and then you endlessly talk about the very daily disciplines and patterns and habits. You know what I mean? Mm. It's one thing to, to be big and giant and vague. It's another thing to be buried in the minutia of every day but you move back and forth freely between the biggest possible view of what it means to be a human being transcending space and time and so this is what this would mean this week yes with actual human beings yes yes <laughs> i mean and i what I, I mean of course i'm totally in love with the text of john i i fall in love with each text as i work on it but yeah, this is this people think of this as this enormously mystical text but what does Jesus do in this text? Uh, Jesus makes water into wine at a wedding. Jesus gets angry and cleanses the temple. 
Jesus sits at a well at noon and says, I thirst. Jesus spits and makes mud to heal. Jesus weeps outside the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus strips down to his BBDs and washes our feet. And I hope people understand that what that text says when Jesus takes off his outer cloak, there's nothing under that. He's wearing only what a servant would wear, and he's appearing only the way a man would appear before his wife. This would be scandalous at the time. It would be be scandalous. It would be intimacy. I mean, everything in this text is about an incredible intimacy, about spirit and matter one. Jesus carries the cross. Jesus, the, the risen Jesus in this text appears as a gardener. I like to think about, you know, the, his fingernails must have been dirty. There must have been sweat coming down out of the armpits. Why else would Mary look around and say, a gardener? Um, this, is, this text, which takes us to the heights, but it's located in, in the most human emotions and expressions. How, tell me about the rubbing, the spit and the rubbing water and dirt together. Tell me about that story. Well, it's always fascinated me. So you've, in, in this reflection that I do on how to use John for building community, we've got the cleanse of the temple, we've got Jesus and Nicodemus, um, and we're always looking to locate where that natural law voice in us is. Then we've got Jesus and the woman at the well, and we do a lot of work on what it's like to welcome the other. And truly, we ask people to imagine the other and not tolerate them, but welcome them. Mm. Welcome them from a generous, loving heart. Welcome them. And then with this, this next text, which is, quote-unquote, the man born blind, where Jesus you know, spits, creates a paste, puts it on the, the, uh, the man's eyes, and he's healed. But the meditation here is, it's almost like Nicodemus, but with a twist. We really, really, really want to see our own blindnesses. What what in us stops God's greater vitality for us? What in us? Because every one of us have, have a, a family and a culture that we were born into. That's, um, they, they took the story as far as they could, but they gave us their blindnesses. Our parents, no matter how wonderful and loving they are, they gave us their blindnesses. Our great teachers, gave us their blindnesses. And so we, we have got to be aware that in the midst of the, the best love that we've gotten from, from those who awoke us to love, mm-hmm. we still received blindness. There's something more that God is wanting us to grow into. And so that, I, I love that image of, of, of Jesus returning us to the humus, to the earth, to the element of earth and knowing that in the earth spirit and matter is one and that the earth the earth holds an awakened passion for us say more about spirit and matter is one well 
Because everything is spiritual. We all know everything. That. Exactly. <laughs> but but we keep separating it out. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I mean, I, I certainly could imagine that Rob Bell has a quote unquote spiritual experience surfing. Yes. Other people have a spiritual experience in the forest. Why are we using language that spirit and matter are not together and, and we all the, time. all the time? Yeah. That's John's message. Spirit and matter is together all the time, everywhere. Go deepen in that reality. Stop trying to make one thing spiritual and another, and another thing matter. Assume that these two are one and it is just your own blindness to that presence which is obviously and I feel like the heart yeah. of my work everything about my work is trying to help people see the divine in the daily yes to see the holiness of this moment to see that all ground is holy to see that every moment is sacred to see the Christ in the common yeah. yes it's to see the thing that you are trying to get to the top of the mountain to see is right here in the valley yeah. that's just yeah. a matter of seeing yeah and I would think that my version of that is I want a new form of communion. I want a new form of community that we're just reaching for. And we're all reaching for this. Every religious tradition right now is reaching for this. Absolutely. No, nobody has got really got it figured out yet. We're, we're getting pretty good, a little bit better about how, for, how do you personally can live a vital life. But now how do we put two vital lives together? How do we put two vital lives together in a way that, that a mutual vitality serves both people? That's, to me, that's our growing edge. And to me, John's, John doesn't have an answer for us. John has a practice. Will you pick it up or not? Oh, so good. So good. So you, um, you're going to be, I think you said you're going to be in New York. Gonna be, are you going to be doing, talking gonna, about this? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about um, the journey, and this will be part of the work of the journey. I'm going to be in Binghamton, New York, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, next week. I don't know what date, so that's the 20th, something, around. something like that. Yeah. And, um, and, but and you're available to come all over the place. I'm available, yep. Yeah. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, go to my website. Quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S dot com. Quadratus. Quadratus dot com. Uh, and then get a hold of you. Yep, there's a, a, a contact sheet on there. Uh, there's also the Quadratus online store on the, on the Quadratus website. And in that store, you will find the companion guides to heart and mind and or to hidden power of the gospel. I want to invite people to go on a journey and I want to invite people to go on a journey in community which is what we've just been talking about uh, there's a group of five of us who for three years have worked on these guides gather one other person gather two other people gather your church if that's your community and go on a journey we've been tracking uh, five communities uh, two in Australia one in New Zealand two in the States over the last year and a half. And we've invited these circles to come into a place of freedom and safety, a place of a welcome of the other. And from that place to make the journey of your life, which we call the journey of quadratus or the journey of heart and mind, 
to walk across the landscape of the four Gospels in the way that I'm describing. The evaluations that we're getting from these communities are just off the wall, vital, not believing that they ever could have found a place where they can think for themselves with their hearts filled with their own passion, where we're only there in the presence of Jesus the Christ for each person to learn about their own vitality. And to the degree that you're willing to bend that to the harmony of the communion. It's, if, if this is the gift of my life to offer this process, um, I will be well satisfied. Oh, it's so great. I meet so many people who are like, where do we start? We wanna gather together and grow together. And I love, cause the content that you bring I like hear it and I naturally I'm like, okay, I want to talk more about that. I want, I, I gotta like wrestle with somebody about all this. Uh, so I love the fact that you've created something and people can find it and they can do it together and right. way you go. Right. So the guides are on the website. It's a, you, you, you purchase the download and, and then, um, um, the, right now there, there are five guides in this series. They're actually the six will be out early in 2016. Um, we're doing a radical thing. I absolutely believe in this process, and we do not want money at all to be a, a, a stumbling block. You buy one guide, uh, $9.99 for one guide. You gather your community. We're asking people to, to, to build the future together with us. Uh, gift back to Quadratus the value that you find in this guide after you've used it. It's like a Radiohead album. Yeah. Pay what you want. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's so fantastic. Uh, it's so great to have you back here again. And next time you're rolling through town, somewhere probably between New York and Santa Fe and Australia, come come by and we'll just keep talking because I love it. I love yeah, it. I, I love being here with you. And uh, hello, everybody. And uh, I'm on my way to walk the Camino in Spain. Uh, my you do. Sec- you literally sec- have boots my, on. I got my boots on. This is my second time. Uh, taking taking a group this year and going back again next September October, and next year we're going to do 900k and going to be gone for six and a half weeks. Uh, come walk with me; would love it. Unbelievable, fantastic! Thank you. Right. Grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>